The new Congress might have been a bit slow getting started, but now it's making up for lost time. A whole tray full of bills having to do with the federal workforce and retirees has popped up in recent days. We get the slideshow now from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And golly, they fair to say there's a lot of activity all of a sudden up there. It really is. It's really picked up. Just amazing how it happens just like that. It's like a light switch goes off. So all of this legislation just pouring out related to federal employees, federal agencies, uh, very active House Republicans getting into their uh, mode where they're going to do a lot of oversight. So we're really seeing a lot of the bills starting to fly into the hopper right now. And let's talk about the new Family Medical Leave Act legislation. This is one that is comes up periodically, I think almost every session which would be giving comprehensive paid leave as the bill is headlined for federal employees. What's going on with that one? Well, and this is a little bit different this year. For one thing, uh, the supporters of FMLA point out that this is uh, the Family and Medical Leave Act is now 30 years old this year, and they really want to make some more changes to it. And, And there is an impetus in part because of what happened during the pandemic when so many people were dealing with sick kids, dealing with themselves being sick and their parents being sick. So there's a move to expand it. Uh, Virginia Congressman Don Beyer and Brian Schatz and the uh, Senate from Hawaii are both collaborating on this, trying once again to try to expand the FMLA. And related to the pandemic, what they would like to do is allow federal employees to take up to 26 weeks of medical and family leave. Of course, currently under the FMLA, employees can take up to 12 weeks for care of a baby or an ill family member, but it is not paid. This would be paid leave. Now, again, this is an uphill battle because Republicans in the House have made it clear that they don't want to spend too much more money. But because of, I think, the pandemic and some other issues related to the FMLA, there is a big push, at least among Democrats, uh, to try to get this expanded. Right. Are there any Republican supporters for it that you've seen in the House or Senate? You know, there's been talk uh, among moderate Republicans who would would probably support this. But uh, again, because uh, the strength right now, at least in the Republican caucus, is related to people who want to scale back spending. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. All right. And then there's another one which really gets into the weeds, the standardization of annual annuity payments to retired feds. This is the Equal COLA Act, and that's, I guess, coming from Jerry Connolly. Right. And uh, while it does get into the weeds, it all comes down to money. And, of course, everybody's thinking about their retirement in the federal uh, government. And uh, this would once again try to get a cost of living adjustment, the COLA, uh, calculated now for federal employee retirement system workers. Specifically, this would give retirees a full annual COLA to their annuity payments, uh, basically achieving parity with the retirees in the civil service service retirement system who already get that annual COLA in its entirety. Basically, Jerry Connolly is saying it's a two-tiered system that's just not fair for many federal employees because federal employment retirement system employees only get 1% below the full COLA, depending on how much the inflation goes up during a particular year. For example, uh, the latest COLA was 8.7%, and that was a real high increase, the highest one since 1982, but the retirees only got 
at a 7.7% cola. Uh, Connolly likes to refer to this as the diet cola because he just doesn't think it's fair to a federal employees. He wants to obviously adjust this, and it's been getting a lot more attention, of course, because inflation has been so high and it has been so prominent a conversation. However, again, it's going to face a tough battle to try to get through. Jerry Connolly knows this. As a Democrat, he's reintroduced this many times, and there is still a lot of pushback from Republicans on this. Uh, but again, he's highlighting the fact that there is some, you know, basic parity issues related to federal employees trying to get uh, keep up with inflation. And one other thing is he points out that, you know, even though it's one percent, you think, oh, well, that's not a lot. But as he notes that over time, if you, you know, every year the retirement adds up, he said that could actually add up to tens of thousands of dollars for people. Well, I think, you know, the dusty tomes of yesteryear will show you that the reason of the Diet Cola had to do with the fact that when they switched from SIRS to FERS, the FERS people also get Social Security. Right. In return for a smaller annuity. SERS people, in theory, don't. They get that from their second career. But that aside, I think that was part of the rationale there. And other people, I guess, maybe remember that. Yeah, that's a great point. All right. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And the Federal Executive Board reauthorization, this used to be a very active chain of groups in the cities that had large federal populations that or away from Washington, executives locally from different agencies would get together and decide things from snow policy or whatever else. And I didn't realize they had not been authorized or funded for some time now. Right. They really hadn't. And so uh, a few senators are trying to get momentum on this again. Among them, Gary Peters of Michigan. He chairs the Senate Homeland Security uh, and Governmental Affairs Committee, along with uh, John Cornyn, prominent Republican from Texas, and, and then Alex Padilla from California. These are states that have many of the boards that do this local work with the uh, with the federal workforce and they're trying to basically get this reauthorized because it's been kind of sitting there as you noted and not really doing much and they point out that you know for all the attention that many lawmakers like to point to the swamp and say that all the federal workers are here in DC as you well know more than 80% of federal workers actually work outside of DC and a lot of them are in these uh, areas in states as I just mentioned. And so they want to try to get this reauthorized. But also another impetus for this is there, as you well know, have been many studies showing that there are not a lot of younger people getting into the federal workforce. And this would also help to get those local tie-ins with the federal agencies to get people with internships and get them into those agencies at a younger age, since we are moving on with a lot of baby boomers moving out of the federal government. Yeah. And the different cities have different flavors in their workforce and in their cultural approaches. And so I think the federal executive boards can be a pretty vital thing. Uh, I remember after 9-11, you know, the New York federal executive board really came together because of the terrible localized conditions there, which really were much worse than Washington. That was, a, I think, a fine moment for the federal executive boards. Right. And I think it really ties in, um, you know, people a lot of the time think, oh, well, the federal government is somewhere else. But when you see the work on the ground, just as you mentioned, then it kind of makes it more real for people about what the federal government can do. All right. And uh, getting to the final thing I wanted to ask you about with respect to legislation, the show up Act. They had the hearings trying to get the idea of telework back to the levels that were pre-pandemic. I noticed that the sponsors of that didn't say 
get rid of telework, let's start over again, but at least to the pre-pandemic levels. But even that one doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Right. Even though it's, uh, you know, moving forward in the House, uh, Republicans have made it very clear they want to get uh, federal workers back into the office. They want to get them back into their agencies. Um, but also there was a back and forth during this argument related to uh, the whole issue of the Show Up Act, which is sponsored by uh, James Comer, who, of course, is now the uh, House Oversight Committee chair. And some of the Democrats were pushing back and saying, well, if you go back to 2019 levels, which is what Republicans essentially were saying in this legislation, that Democrats argue that it would be taking the federal government backwards. People like Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly and others who have pushed really hard for telework say that, you know, well, if you just go back and try to put the genie back in the bottle, um, we're actually going to move the other direction and we're not going to have enough people that can work back and forth. And so uh, a lot of people um, kind of in the middle here are, are looking again for some kind of hybrid where you don't necessarily say everybody has to get back every single day of the week. But at the same time, you don't have people that are staying home and not getting into the office. And that's part of the re argument that many Republicans have made is they think that people have been staying home just by choice and they don't want to come in at all. And, of course, then there's the whole other argument about how many people are actually going to get into these federal agencies here in the Washington area and what that's going to meet for the real estate market. Uh, there's a whole, as you know, a whole number of complicated issues related to this. Yeah, it really is a multifaceted issue. And there's that little pressure from the city of Washington, the Washington, D.C. government, which whose thinkers I think are more aligned with the way Democrats in Congress think in general. And so they would like, like Muriel Bowser has said, the mayor of D.C., either come back or consolidate and release the space you're leasing. Right, exactly. And so that's why there's so much talk in D.C. now about whether or not some of these office buildings are going to be converted into condos or apartments, because if it's just going to be a big empty building down near K Street or somewhere like that, uh, D.C. is going to lose out on a lot of tax revenue. So uh, there's, again, a lot of big issues here. And what about some of the big nominees? I'm thinking of the IRS commissioner, Danny Wolf Werfel. When is that going to finally get hearings. Yeah, that will come up before the Senate Finance Committee this week, and he is going to get a lot of questions, no doubt, about the $80 billion plus that's going to the IRS under the Inflation Reduction Act. As you know, many Republicans very uh, concerned about the fact that billions of dollars are going to go to the IRS. And in fact, the House basically symbolically, as their first piece of legislation, passed a bill that said that that money should be taken away. Uh, they have made the argument that this is all going toward IRS agents, and many of them armed, but of course that is not really correct. But it is going to hire a lot more IRS officials and IT people. And so I'm sure uh, Werfel is really going to get a lot of questions about that because there's a lot of money at stake for sure. Yes, he's got a very fine eye of the needle to thread during those hearings. Absolutely. And what about Gigi Sohn for the Federal Communications Commission? She's going to come up for a consideration again before the Commerce Committee, uh, the Senate Commerce Committee this week. And and uh, her nomination actually has really been stuck. Her It never went forward. A lot of Republicans have been charging that she's been critical of conservatives over the years and that she said some things that, that they have a lot of issues with. So she will certainly be under the proverbial Senate hot seat coming up this week. And just a final question, the State of the Union. I don't know why people get so excited about that. It's just every year it's one politician <laughs> or another. I, I, the president's, those are campaign speeches. I don't care who it is. But... 
there wasn't a whole lot that the federal workforce or the federal bureaucracy could take away from it, aside from the ongoing battle over Social Security that is being conducted publicly by the president and some of his opponents in the Senate. Any ripples left from it? Well, I do think that's a pretty significant ripple because, uh, as you note, a lot of times the speech gets done and it's a laundry list of things that are never really going to happen. But in this case, I think it's been really interesting to see the dynamic that the president... The White House is feeling pretty good about how he handled the State of the Union, and they feel like that the Republicans have been boxed in a little bit and and basically saying, no, we can't and won't cut into Medicare and we won't touch Social Security. And then there's even an internal battle within the Republicans. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott of Florida, who's actually the one who's floated the idea of sunsetting the uh, Social Security and Medicare and basically having to reauthorize them every five years, that's caused uh, political fireworks within the GOP. So in some respects, even though State of the Union, you can kind of go meh when it happens. Uh, In this case, I think there's a lot of pushing back and forth now because we're going to be, of course, moving toward the debt ceiling battle. And so it's kind of interesting to see how this first stage of that fight is taking place. Well, maybe the debate would get better if they upgraded from Ripple even to Gallo. (laughs) That's right. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Give the Federal Drive a yay vote. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost... uh... Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, you know, and I obviously will say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought well you know take a look at it and see see, you know throw uh, send in my information and lo and behold I I I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused. 
has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know it's often when you'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on you know like look at look at terrell like he he, he faces everything with optimism and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and I mean, we work hard and, you know, we we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the, at Special Olympics, no one's excluded, you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics and, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and, uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age. It's, it's, uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or, uh, year old, uh, folks, uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the, founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to 
uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, it, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.